Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Classical podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Talking Classical podcast and you'll receive a notification every time a new episode is released. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, on the Talking Classical blog and on Facebook and YouTube. Many thanks for listening once again. I hope that you'll be able to join me for the next episode very soon. Joining us today is Julia Bishop. She's a violinist specialising in the world of baroque performance practice. She's also an educator, but you probably know her best as the co-founder of the pioneering baroque music quartet Red Priest, who have brought their dynamic and vibrant reinterpretations of some of the best-loved baroque composers to audiences all over the world. Julia, it's so fantastic to have you. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Tell us a little bit more about yourself and um, how you got into this wonderful world of early music. Well, I discovered it through uh, Roger Norrington, who later became very, very famous and um, started the London Classical Players, which I ended up playing in. But he, he came, I was at the Royal College of Music and I already was aware of how much I loved early music and I wanted to start learning the Brock violin as well as the normal violin, as it were. And he came along and he did basically, he came for a term to coach the chamber orchestra on an, a Handel opera and everything just fell into place. Every, every single thing he said, I agreed with and thought, this is how I've always wanted to play this music. And uh, he was a huge inspiration. So after having a little wrangle with the college about giving up the piano so I could take up rock violin as my second study. I started it in my third out of the four years there. And so, and started with Kat McIntosh, who was wonderful. And she, again, was a real inspiration. So then um, I left college uh, after four years. I, I carried on playing, doing all my modern violin studies. And I was sort of, yeah, I was just wondering what to do next, <laughs> knowing I liked doing all, all aspects of the violin really and I did some trials for symphony orchestras and things like that but actually then I started to get some work for uh, the Academy of Ancient Music and some other groups as well and it just took off after that it absolutely took off I just didn't stop after that I just found my found where I wanted to be and it's been like that ever since. What was it particularly about early music and baroque violin that you that you love most and why did you choose to to specialize in that compared to say the modern violin because there's a sort of a an honesty in baroque music there's a there's a purity in it, it it's so close to the voice that the phrasing all made sense as soon as I started to study it from a baroque point of view historical performance um, it made more sense it was so much more natural I think and then playing with the Baroque bow was just a joy. It was just like everything fell into place with that as well. I quite liked the, the although I sometimes struggle with, with gut strings because they can be so difficult and temperamental. But I did love that kind of rawness in the sound, that kind of, again, it's that, that purity and honesty um, really appealed to me. And uh, also it's, a, it's going back to times that were simpler, where... There's no technology then. It was all just kind of candlelight and 
real everything was felt more real really and I, it really the whole thing the whole the whole thing appealed to me so much and, yeah. it, and it still does it really does it's not without its difficulties and sometimes when I play my modern violin um, I just think oh it's so much easier you know modern <laughs> strings and a chin rest and all the rest of it but then I soon miss the baroque and I like I miss the challenges and the other thing about baroque is that you can be very creative in it the, the less there is on the page the more you can do things with the music with ornamentation and with your dynamic range and your articulation and um, I've always loved that that you've you've got that freedom to to be creative yourself. Do you think that people though might be a bit scared about playing baroque music because of all the the so-called rules that are in place? It's funny it's a very good question because yes there are a lot of rules and you do have to know the rules before you can if you like break them Absolutely. Uh, so there's a lot of studying to be done and there still always will be um, for me I, I'll never finish reading up about things in workshops that I teach people ask me questions and I think oh that's an interesting one and I don't know that that's something for me to look up this week or whatever so always it will always be like that and yes it's scary because you can't hide behind anything with Baroque violin the tuning is has got to be so precise you can't hide behind a wide vibrato for example but the funny thing is that when people do get into Baroque then they realize how freeing it is as well you know yes there are all these rules but there's also this wonderful sense of of the mavericks you know the, the maverick composers of the time and and the fact that there were such flamboyant performers you know they in a way it's more free but you do have to know the rules you can't just think oh yes it's baroque music so that means no vibrato everything plays very fast and you do, you know just do whatever it, you like yeah. some some terrible terrible kind of assumptions over the years with people that haven't really studied it and actually it's far far more nuanced than that far more nuanced what was it like to be right there in the throes of the i suppose the so-called authentic movement the historical performance movement i imagine you were there right from the beginning i mean we'd had liz walker on um a few years ago and she said that it was an incredible time um which I think we kind of take for granted do you know it was an incredible time I was I'd just like to say I wasn't there quite at the very beginning oh, okay. <laughs> the real beginning started in about the 1920s actually exactly. and then and then there was the then there was the whole the real explosion of it that happened in the 70s yes absolutely and it was really the the late 80s um that I started and early 90s that I got involved and that was that turned out to be such an amazing era because it was the era of all the recordings that were being made as well so endless recordings endless tours and uh endless concerts uh, it was an incredibly fruitful time for Baroque so I was really lucky to to find it in that time I think yeah I really yeah because I, I remember I remember you know when all of those records came out and now I just feel that things maybe are a little bit too a little bit too clean and a little bit too clinical and I feel like we kind of take that whole sound world I think for, for granted. Well it's funny you should say about clean because that's exactly how Red Priest really found its its kind of form because yeah and let's let's, let's go on to that actually. Clean. Yeah everything got rather clean in the 80s and 90s as well certainly in the 90s as well and I think it was because of all the recordings you know there was this real pressure for everything to be so perfect that actually you know the standard got higher and higher and higher in in the 1970s there were all these wonderful eccentrics that were all all playing and they were so creative and free and perhaps they hadn't quite mastered sometimes you know the technicalities of the instruments and things so 
and they and they were perhaps a bit primitive with some of the things they did like this idea of a message of vulture where you do a lovely bloom on a note they yes. took it and they ran with it to the point where the early music movement had a bit of a reputation for everybody kind of making these big bulges you know so there were some things that got ironed out and, and refined in a good way such as that you know more of an understanding of of a true message of vulture and more of an understanding about the vibrato element and the fact that, of course, you can use vibrato. It's just when you use vibrato and why you use vibrato and what speed and whether you're aware that you're using vibrato rather than... So there was this... In the 70s, there was this rather an idea that you better switch off the vibrato that had been so incredibly there, you know, in the decades before that. And everything had to have its phase of discovery. So there were a lot of things that were being discovered in a good way in the 80s and 90s, but then it became a bit too clinical, as you say. And I started to feel uncomfortable with that. And at that point, I met Piers Adams, recorder player, and um, he was feeling a bit the same. He was being rather kind of rebellious. And we we both, well, I discovered this amazing group in the 80s called Il Giardino Armonico, who are still very much around now. And they were just blowing it apart. They were absolutely fantastic. They were going right still back on. to real, you know them, the, the real yeah. extreme dynamics. And, Incredible. And they were, they were incredible. And, and I, I introduced that group to peers who hadn't heard them yet. And we both said, well, we want to be like that. That's what we want to be like. So they were our inspiration for starting Red Priest. And that's how it all began. We just said, right, we're, gonna, we're just going to do what we want to do now. We want to just free all this up again. Tell us a little bit more about how the group came about. Like you said, you were getting a little bit fed up with how the early music scene was and you wanted to, to shake things up a bit. Yeah. We did. So we deliberately did things that we knew people would find difficult. For example, we played at 440, pitch 440, ah. instead of at 415, because 415 is just a modern day convenience. Yes. And it's just one of many pitches. But we know that Vivaldi played a lot at much higher. I mean, 440, near or near enough. Piers' favourite recorders were at 440. And we thought, well, why not 440? And actually, it was great fun because the whole sound became a lot more taut I guess and bright so we've all the way through we've played always played at 440 and we also made arrangements of things so there were very few pieces that we played which were just simply for the exact format of harpsichord cello recorded in violin we did arrangements of whatever we felt like because again we knew that was authentic that people are always making arrangements out of things or copying or, or or swapping instruments around or whatever we knew that was authentic and we just but but yeah, we we made a few enemies along the way musically, though. There were people that felt it was, it was you know, it was like Marmite. People either loved it or hated it, really. Yeah. So we had to kind of ignore a lot of criticism as well and just plough on, which yeah. you have to do. If you believe in something, you have to just plough on, don't you? Exactly, yeah. exactly. And I remember it really just felt like something totally fresh not only for the early music world but the, the classical music world as well and I was going to ask you I mean did you get any did you sometimes encounter any criticism from I suppose the more traditional musicians and audiences? Yeah there were people that thought we were being really inauthentic and sometimes we were and sometimes we weren't so you know there were things that we would do like throw in a, a different a different style in the middle of a rock piece just yes. for the fun of it really but our, our our caveat was always, well, it's authentic to be creative or it's authentic to not be restricted by the rules because they, they, yeah, certainly some of the more flamboyant composers of the day 
they were very free, you know, in what they wanted to do. And they were starting new styles, you know, like, for example, Vivaldi. It was out of the Concerto Grosso that Vivaldi and, and other con- Italian contemporaries started the idea of the, of the concerto as we know it today with one soloist or, say, two soloists and an orchestra. So that came out of nothing. He decided, or some of them, he, he and other Italian composers decided that's what they wanted to try next. So in a way, we, were, we felt we were carrying on that tradition of trying out new things. So if you want to throw a bit of piazzolo in with, some, with, with something Baroque, well, is it such a sin, you know? So, yes, but we were criticised for that, that some people really hated that. And that's fair enough. If they want to go and hear something completely traditional, traditionally purist, then fine, don't, don't come to Red Priest. Um, the other thing we did was we did everything from memory. And that was a, a very, very liberating, terrifying at times, but liberating experience, which I would always encourage now for people. Because for a start, it makes you practice everything many more times than, than you would do because you are, you're not just reading off the score. And after the first one or two performances, which are always nerve wracking, of course, you start getting into it and it's just so freeing. It's just so lovely to have not have the music stand as a barrier and you can walk about and you can go up to different musicians or you can go to the front of the stage and lean out to the audience. Or, you know, it's so freeing not to be stuck behind the music stand. Yeah. Freeing, but, but you really have to make sure you've learned your music. You know, you can never practice it too much when you're memorising. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I've seen Red Priest performing and you have a fantastic stage presence. I mean, you smile and, you know, you love to move around. I mean, have you always been like that or did it take time? For you Not to... at all. Really? Not at you all. You come across as being no. so confident and I love seeing that sassiness and that feminine, you know, side of you. It's great. Well, thank you. But actually, <laughs> it's been quite a long journey, to be honest. I was really? at, when I was at music college, I was a nervous wreck. Really? Um, but I got, I, yeah, I, I did find it very intimidating at music college, the whole tradition, the weight of tradition. And, and then when I left music college, I had a very nervous phase. You know, I, I just I don't know. I, did, I really did. But then Red Priest was a liberation because I, I used to get very nervous playing in orchestras where I needed to fit in all the time. So yeah, I used to get yeah. like in, in really pianissimo moments in concerts and things. I used to get almost paralysed thinking, oh, I mustn't stick out. I mustn't stick out. And I know other violinists that have felt the same in a section. And actually, when I, when I stepped out of all that and did what you'd consider to be more nerve wracking, which would be to play just in, with four, three other people and from memory. Yes, it was nerve wracking in some ways, but in another way, I found it very liberating because I could actually play out. I could actually play as strongly as I wanted to play, whereas I'd always felt I'd need, or I always used to react very strongly to being told to play down. You know, I felt very hemmed in by that. So I used to get almost stuck in the middle of the bow. Yeah, yeah, concerts. you bow. You know, it's crazy, really. And also, my confidence has grown through life events happening as well. Yeah. Like having a baby, for example. A lot of people say this. It, put, it puts things in perspective a lot. And you care so much. You're caring so much for that life, that fragile life, that you, you know, doing a concert just seems like not that serious. Exactly. You know, Six years ago, I was I was ill. I had to give up playing for a year, and that was that was life changing as well. I'm fine now, but now I don't think I'd ever get as nervous again in doing a concert. The other thing is, you learn what your strengths are, and you know what you as you get older, you learn what you know would be too stressful for you. 
particular pieces or particular situations that you might be put in that you you know if you get to know yourself you know that for example you wouldn't be one of those people that could fly into Tokyo and do a, a four seasons performance that same day or something I mean some people can yeah but I know I'm I would be, I'm not strong enough for that you know so it's things like that you, you know what to say no to as well it's a balance because you want to keep pushing your boundaries and, and you, you've got to keep pushing out of your comfort zones but you've got to do them in a balanced way in a gradual way you've got to do them in a incremental rather than some enormous challenge that you give yourself which actually stresses you out for months in advance you know and I I, I don't think like I think life's too short actually for that you, you talked about you know touring what was it like I mean being in the group because I mean you, you toured all over the world you're on the BBC you had your own special on the South Bank show what an incredible <laughs> honour what was that was. period like it well it it was one of those it was it was amazing it was very very busy it was probably too busy really? uh, because in the middle of it all as I said I had this baby and yeah. we ended up taking her around with us and that was very very tiring because you know we were trying to do you know tours of, of Japan or America with a tiny baby oh. or a toddler so I was sometimes just too tired to even think too much about everything I just kind of stumble onto the stage and it would be like almost two hours off would be the actual concert and at one stage I was almost too busy to the point where I was not enjoying it because I was so tired you know all the the long flights and things like that and actually um you know again it's all about balance but obviously you want to do the concerts because they're there and you're in your sort of heyday but at times they they were a bit a bit too much and to the point where I I felt a bit numb sometimes Um, yeah you're just going through the motions aren't you Sometimes you were so tired that you were and, and, and you always wanted to be professional and, and hopefully nobody would, would know you felt like that. But, you know, you've got to smile and you've got to be really out there and performing, even if you've got flu. You know, it's 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 it's. um Yeah, I had a few times when I was I had a bug and you, you've got to hide it. And there's been so much organising going on behind the scenes to get the concert to happen. You've got to just go ahead and do it. So you have to be a, a, a good actor as well as a craftsman in your music. You have to be a good actor. You have to, I, ha, I do teach that a lot. Yeah, I've had students that have said to me, you know, oh, I don't think, I don't think my personality fits this music. And I say, it's not about your personality. You're an actor. <laughs> you, fit, you fit with the music. It's not fitting with you. I think acting plays a big part in the training of a musician. Yeah, acting confident, acting energetic when, as I said, you feel really tired or even acting like you like the person you're playing next to. Because at times we didn't like each other. (laughs) We did. We always Red Priest always got on well fundamentally, but we had our scraps. But you've got again, you've got to hide all that. You can't have any of that coming onto the stage. So, yeah, you you had to just be really smiley and, and, and create a really good vibe for your audience. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Did you did you ever create a backstory for yourself when you're on stage? Because I know that in some of the pieces that you performed, like, I mean, the obvious example is the Four Seasons. And of course, you have the whole narrative behind that. When you're on stage, you acted out the various movements. I mean, tell me a bit more about that, that process and, you know, the whole acting side of things, if you like, and how that feeds into, you know, your performance and early music. And yeah, so fascinating, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it, it was very organic. We used to something like take take the four seasons as yeah. an example. 
we took about a year to agree and decide on the final arrangement of that piece. And so, and, and along the way, we also incorporated in little ideas. For example, the obvious one is in autumn, where, um, you know, it's all about a deer that, that is, in the end, it dies. And so we, we just like to take ideas that we found quite funny and just run with them. So, so the idea of Piers being the deer and actually yeah. lying on the ground and pretending to be dead and everything, you know, <laughs> it was just, it just came out of the rehearsals. These, these ideas would just kind of grow and then we'd, half the time we'd joke and say, oh, we could do this. And somebody would go, well, we could do that, actually. And then it would sort of stick, you know. Yeah. And some, some ideas were, you know, a bit silly and, and others always went down very, very well in the audience. So they kind of stuck, you know. So, yeah, it's a very organic process. With, with each of the CDs that we made took took a long time of, of, of discussing it. And somebody would come with an arrangement, not particularly me, but some of the other members of the group. And then we'd take the idea and say, yeah, this is great, but also it sparked another idea. Can we try this in with it as well? Which is always quite difficult for the person who had brought the arrangement in the first place. But but they were always very good about, about trying to turn it into a group arrangement because it's good if you've got four people that are all bouncing ideas off each other, you know, you can end up with a much bigger creative result. So yeah. a lot of that was going on where somebody would bring, bring the main core of a piece and then we'd all pitch in and go, oh, that's great. Well, that's reminded me of of something I'd like to do. I mean, for example, you know, in the slow movement of winter, which I play in a quite a kind of jazzy way, I knew that I wanted to do that, but I couldn't hear what the sound was. And it was Howard that started doing the kind of calypso playing on the on the harpsichord. And that was it. I, I knew what to do after that. And that was because he had got the idea from me and then thought, oh, I know what you want. And then he did the calypso yeah. uh, rhythm. And then it was easy after that. I just immediately knew what I wanted to arrange so that's a good example of of everything working together you know yeah that's that's fantastic have you got any favorite pieces that you enjoyed playing with the group or still do enjoy with the group? yeah in fact recently we did a kind of a retro concert um it was in during lockdown it was a live stream and um we got all our favorites out actually and it was really fun and I think that probably the one that I love the most is actually um the Toccata and Fugue Oh, okay. But, yeah. <laughs> I just found it really thrilling to play. Yeah. It's scary because it's a because of the fugal bit, it's very difficult for memorizing, but it's a very thrilling piece to play. It's brilliant. So enjoyed that very much. And yeah, lots of other pieces really. Um the foliar variations was always a favorite of ours. Some of the slow pieces that we did we really enjoyed. Um trying to think now like the bark aria and things there was a little piece called by Ortiz a little a little dance that we must have done as an encore literally oh, yeah. hundreds of times yeah so that was always a, a quite a fun piece to play yeah um, yeah and I did really enjoy all of the programs we did um I think the the bark program and the handle program were the two absolute favorites for me though which were in fact the last two ones I did Everything we did that was quite witty was always to remind an audience that you can have fun with classical music. I think that was probably our very serious message behind it all. And a lot of times that's what the feedback would be. People would come back and say, you know, oh, I didn't realise you could have so much fun in classical music. You know, and I was that was my absolute passion to get people to realise that it's a living incredibly visceral, fantastic form of music, a medium of music. 
and it had become so stultified not mm. just in the early music movement but before, before that as well really from the I guess the Victorian era when everything became very formal and and you know audiences and performers alike would all wear their bow ties and the jackets and, and it all got very very formal and it that kind of stuck didn't it all the way through the 20th century that that formality and that seriousness and so people would feel they were terrified to clap in the wrong place or something like that yeah you know and I always hated that I always thought that was really sad you know you, you go to a jazz club and everybody would be so relaxed listening with their glass of wine and and then classical was always this terribly tense situation with very formal you know and it wasn't helping anyone it wasn't it wasn't helping the the audience to relax and it wasn't actually helping the performers to relax either no so one of my pet things has been to actually make make classical I mean I'm lots of people are feeling like this now it's not just me but it's always been this thing about making classical music much more accessible so I really love playing in a setting where people are sitting at bistro tables with a glass of alcohol and because I know that they'll be more relaxed than if they're sitting in a church with lots of rows of pews and us us and them and I also like playing in the round yeah I like it when if if we're in the middle and you've got an audience right the way around you and you can just go up to different people so anything that isn't that formal us and them thing where we're on the stage they're looking at us we're looking at them I, I'm, I'm keen to break that mold you know and yeah. luckily a lot of other people feel the same and it's actually happening it wasn't like that in the Baroque period that's the thing no it, you know that came much later so people who wander in and out and they wouldn't particularly dress up or they'd just play to each other in an informal setting in their houses so that whole formality of everybody you can hear a pin drop and everybody very very smart you know that came much later anyway you mentioned ties and tails I think we have to talk about some of those amazing costumes that you wore on stage did you have a stylist or did you work with a designer or well actually I was kind of the stylist actually ah. um, I was the one that I always knew what I liked to wear I still wear those sorts of things now I just I, I found the look that I liked and yeah. we decided on the color because it was red priest and red sells it just sells so the, the name red and the color red you know we knew that would be good so we always kept that red and black they still do now you know I'm, I don't play with them now but they're still going and they and they they've they've it's getting more different colors have come in now but it's still got that kind of those strong colors against black which I think pick up very well on stage you know yeah and it was always important that we were all comfortable so for example, Angela, Angela always wanted me to um, t- tell her what to wear. She was, this is Angela, oh, okay. the cellist. Yeah. So, but actually she didn't always sort of have much confidence about it. And she'd tell me some of her ideas and I'd say, well, they sound great to me. And she'd always go off and get some, some things made that turned out to be absolutely fantastic. She used to wear a lovely coat with stars and stripes all over it. And, yeah. you know, and, and it really suited her. Piers always had a very clear idea of what he felt comfortable in. And and David again very different, but yeah, more folky, I guess. But but it was always important to to feel that you had a homogenized look by maybe the colours, but but within that you could have different styles that suited you, suited your body shape and, and your personality, what you felt comfortable in. Yeah, because it's so important. important to feel if you want to play well on stage, 
that you've got to feel confident in yourself as well and in how you look and how you feel and yeah it yeah. All really contributes doesn't it yeah it really does and, and personally I I'd never want to look scruffy on stage you know there are some musicians that don't really seem to care and I don't like it you know when they have open neck shirts and they haven't really made much effort you know I like to feel I've dressed up for the occasion and I believe that an audience kind of likes to think that you have as well so I'm quite hot on that with students as well making yeah. sure that they're really smart and and they find a look that suits them but that they make sure that the message they give is that they've made an effort for their audience so whatever I remember I was um, watching somebody at the Royal College and she had a fantastic look it was black jeans and very cool very very cool and I said to her I just want to make sure that that's because you want to convey that look and it's not just because you're you didn't want you didn't you couldn't be bothered to not find any jeans you know you've got to and she went no I wanted to convey that look and I said okay but the fact that I wasn't that sure means you've got to somehow change it slightly so get keep that cool look but make sure it's known to your audience who are after all the most important thing here is the audience make sure that you've conveyed a kind of I'm doing this on purpose it's not that I just couldn't be bothered to kind of think about it you know so it's a very fine line and you have to dress to, for your age, I think, as well. <laughs> so I wouldn't now wear ripped jeans, you know. It just no. wouldn't look right on my my age, I don't think. so. To, I know, yeah. I know. <laughs> and it doesn't mean you have to be frumpy at no. all. You just have, But you just have to just feel right for your, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. You, you mentioned your students there, and you also mentioned the idea of you want to make classical music fun for your students especially when you're teaching them so tell me a little bit more about your methods I suppose when you're teaching early music to well you teach a range of ages don't you you teach students amateurs tell me a bit more about that yes I do I've taught adults and students most Um, I have taught children but I do feel that's not been my absolute forte because they're so young they're still this you know I've taught I've taught children about Baroque because I believe that the the basic principles of Baroque should be learned as early as possible but I sometimes think that they're, they're battling with the instruments anyway without you know it's a bit young maybe I'm beginning to think that you probably don't really appreciate the the nuance of Baroque style till you're over 18 actually in general with some exceptions but in general that's what I've noticed and I teach a lot of amateur workshops as well to a, a wide, very wide, wide range of age there. And I teach um, at Chichester University. I've got the Baroque Orchestra there. Now, what I really love doing is seeing the surprise on students' faces when they get given a piece of Baroque music, which they think is going to be A, really easy, because it's not Sibelius, you know, yeah. and B, quite boring because there are no dynamics written on on the music and they're looking for those dynamics maybe that they would find in a in a romantic piece where you've got all the instructions in there the hairpins the kind of fortissimos the calandos the alagandos you've got so much instruction in there which wasn't actually written in the music in the Baroque period and I love giving students the permission to create all those effects and dynamics and articulations for themselves without having to wait to be told with an Italian term in the in the music but they need to understand why and where and that's so it's introducing the whole idea of rhetoric in Baroque music and how you can 
hear it in the music. You can hear it in the harmony and what the bass line's doing and how things change. For example, if the cello suddenly drops down an octave, that's sometimes for a very interesting, surprising dramatic effect. Or if there's chromatics in the bass line, or if there's a long pedal note, with, which is just asking for a crescendo on it. And things like if the music, if the notes go up, the tessitura goes up, the notes just go up on the stave, then try a crescendo because it always works. And if the music comes down through the stave, try a diminuendo because that really works. These are very basic things, but it's a starting point for them to, I give them the permission to to find these in the music without having to have the written instructions. So that's always my starting point. And, and I also, I like to bring manuscript music to the groups so that they, it's always a bit of a shock because it's handwritten music and um, there are little symbols and signs that are different to what they would be expected. But, but, it, but it creates a kind of flavour and an atmosphere. I think it just gets people in the groove a bit more. It's a bit like being able to do a concert in, in a period costume. You know, you feel like you're, you're, in, you're part of something from the past. And I sometimes just sit back and say, OK, I don't, there wouldn't have been a conductor for this particular piece anyway, say a concerto grosso by Corelli or something. So I say, I'm just not going to do any carving out of any beats. I'm just going to sit here and you're going to perform to me and you're going to create the experience by spreading it around the orchestra. So if somebody wants to start doing a crescendo, it's how quickly can the whole orchestra respond to that? Because that's what's happening all the time in professional concerts. People are responding all the time to something that might be happening, um, which may or may not have been, shed, you know, rehearsed. So but it's that sense that everybody's responsible and, and that everybody can take initiative. And I find that a really pleasurable part of teaching, seeing Amazing. people taking responsibility and feeling that they have got a really important role and they're not just going to sit there and be an empty vessel while somebody at the front tells them, right, could you write in a, a forte now or could you write in a diminuendo now? That's that's so much less interesting for each performer, isn't it? Mm, mm, absolutely. Um, and it, it comes, it came in much later and also it comes in with much, you have a conductor in even in baroque music when there's a great big um, chorus or something, you know, a big choir as well. But for these small groups, just a little chamber, a little string group playing a concerto grosso, then everybody can take responsibility and you don't need somebody at the front. You need a leader to, 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 to get the whole thing going and to show you what, how to end it. But you don't, in between that, everybody leads together. That's my philosophy, very much so. I yeah. feel strongly about it. Finally, Julia gave some advice to newcomers aspiring to get into the music industry. Well, never give up is my initial message. When I was at the college, I finished in 1987. And even back then, we were all told there's no work out there. I don't know what you all think you're going to do. There's no work. There's no work. And I thought, I'm, I'll, be, I'll, I'll be the judge of that. I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. And um, there was plenty of work. You have to have a lot of determination. And you have to be organised. You have to be... You have to be good at self-promotion. You certainly have to learn to get good at that. Or if you really can't do it, pay somebody else to do it. Ask an adult is what I always say. It's, it's happening again now because we, we're in a very, musicians are in a very interesting situation after the whole COVID thing and lockdown. There's a lot of restrictions at the moment on, on playing. And there's a, you know, we're in a very, very, very fragile scenario where a lot of music clubs and festivals are still understandably nervous about booking and things like that. So 
musicians have hit, had a very strange time the last 18 months where they've had to really search their souls. And some people have felt, no, I can't do this anymore. But I'm not one of those people. And it reminds me of how I felt when I came out of music college. I'm right. No, I'm going to, even if we can't travel in the same way because of Brexit as well, that's, that's causing quite a lot of difficulties for mus- musicians touring. So the combination of the whole lockdown thing and everybody losing their work, you know, it's been a very strange 18 months. And I see it, I just see it as a new challenge, as a new opportunity to think, okay, how can I recreate everything again then? And maybe things should be different anyway, because it actually was crazy the way we all, musicians all just like, would fly in, you know, into Germany for one concert and then back out again. We all know that. We all know, all musicians know that's crazy. But because it's the way it is and you're not going to get your work otherwise, everyone goes along with it. But actually, this could be an opportunity for everybody just to stay in their own countries and create all the, all the concerts here. If everyone, if everyone did that in their own countries, then there'd be just as many concerts with far less travelling, which obviously would be good in many ways wouldn't it for yourself for the climate you know you you know it's obvious so this is where I'm at at the moment just thinking okay how can we get concerts going again now and get confidence back for the audience for the promoters you know and it was just starting really it's just starting and it's a little bit precarious because I suppose people aren't quite sure what's going to happen this winter either whether there's going to be any more trouble but hopefully it won't be anywhere near like it's been um, and confidence can just grow and get back, get back the concerts, but maybe in a, in a more sensible way, I think. So take it as an opportunity. So my, my advice is absolutely see everything as an opportunity, a, a challenge, yes, but an opportunity and not something where you just think, oh, I can't, this is too much. You know, If you really want to do it, then you will find a way, you will find a way yeah thank you so much for taking the time it's been so fantastic to talk thank you thank you okay so that's the end of well, the it's interview. a real pleasure